I've heard you say that vaccination is the biggest scam ever perpetrated in history. And I've never ever wavered from my message that vaccines are not safe. They've never been proven to be safe. They don't keep you from getting sick and they definitely do cause harm. It's the biggest multi-generational propaganda piece I think that's ever been perpetrated on the human race to assume that you can inject foreign matter into some human being and in any way positively impact its health is just it's just propaganda to the to the nth degree ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace love joy and good health are the daily standard that's what this show is all about welcome to vibe and here's your host robin openshaw hey everyone robin openshaw here welcome back to the show I have set up some one-click campaigns so that you can do three things. One of them is, and just if any of these speak to you, make sure you go to takeactionforfreedom.com. This is what you're going to hear me talking about ongoing because we have lost a lot of freedom, which is why we're here today. We're going to talk about that. And, and everybody I'm interviewing, I'm asking, what is a way or two that we can take back our freedom? And one of the campaigns we've set up is that with one click, you can tell everyone in Congress who represents you, Congress and the Senate, that you expect them to vote no on HR 6666, which is the bill to fund the contact tracing, uh, the contact tracing from the federal level, which means that the federal government can hold it over the state's heads and give each of the states whatever, $2 billion, $5 billion, whatever of the $100 billion they're trying to fund, which they have to go borrow that money. And then after these states get the billions of dollars and they give them to medical facilities and schools and uh, churches, listen, once we fund that thing, it's ongoing. It's like TSA. It's like, it's like Homeland Security. Okay, they get us in a vulnerable position. They get us scared. They get us to agree to give up our freedom. It never comes back, right? It's been what? Uh, 19 years now and we've never got those trillions of dollars canceled and all those jobs for TSA. Um, this is going to be the same thing, but it's a lot scarier actually because once we give this freedom up, the federal government is now in an incredibly powerful position where they can then say, okay, we gave you however many billion dollars and, and to rescue these churches and uh, educational centers and medical centers, but then next year they're allowed to give them as much money as they want every single year. And what they could do, and I want you to think about this and how powerful this is, is that they could say, we're not gonna give you your money this year unless you agree, all you churches, all you medical facilities, all you schools, that you don't let anybody in your door. You don't educate people. You don't provide medical services. You don't let them come sit in your congregation and worship unless they are, are chipped and tracked and vaccinated. Okay, that is the power we're giving to the federal government. Of course, it doesn't say that in the bill. People are like, that's not true. It doesn't say that in the bill. No, no, no. This is the play that they're setting up. You know, it's like signing a bad contract that you didn't have your attorney sign, right? So um, please go to takeactionforfreedom.com. And with one click, when you tell us what your zip code is, we'll send to everybody in Congress and the Senate a, a letter saying, we expect you to vote no on HR 6666, which is an unprecedented loss of freedom but we also will not vote for you in the fall if you go forward with this. So very important. Another, we have another thing we're setting up and that is that with one click, you can tell your mayor and all your city council members, we don't want 5G in our community and here's why. And here's some resources that you can go check out how you are gonna, you live in this community too. You're, you're gonna expose your own family and everybody in our neighborhoods, in our community to a massively increased cancer risk as well as autoimmune 
disease risk as well as heart disease risk. Um, so go learn about it, Mr. Mayor and Mrs. City Council person, and please vote no. And it empowers them. It teaches them important things like the fact that they cannot be sued by telecom. They don't know that. They probably think that they let all these towers be built and they can be sued. By law, they cannot be sued. You tell them that in this letter with one click. You don't have to write the letter. I already wrote the letter. You just give us your zip code and we send it to your mayor, to all your city councilmen. There is another letter in there if you'd like to send it with one click to your governor and lieutenant governor saying, we don't support the economic shutdown and we don't want any economic shutdowns this winter either. Okay, so these are three super powerful, one-click health political, health politics. You guys haven't seen me be this deep in health politics, but I have to. I have to. I have to speak up on these things, and I have to help you speak up on these things. I got all these staff who are amazing, amazingly technical. My, my small business is still standing. Is it doing well? No. No small business is, but while we've got some bandwidth and we got all this talent, we put it to work making these one-click health politics campaign so that you can speak up, so you can be heard, so the people who represent you know how you feel about these unprecedented loss of freedoms. Today's interview is one of the most exciting interviews I've ever done. It is absolutely power packed with one of the greatest advocates for medical freedom alive, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Now, if you saw Vaxxed or Vaxxed 2, you're probably familiar with her work, but she's been out there for 20 years. I decided to stop vaccinating my kids about five years before she came on the scene and figured out as a medical doctor that she didn't want to be a vaccine bully. She didn't want to push vaccines on people. She was raised by chiropractors, so she already had a pretty good background in and healthy respect for people in the more holistic areas. But she has um, spent 40,000 hours. I don't know that anybody has spent more time studying the published literature and getting to the bottom of of the the fraud in the pharmaceutical industry specifically the vaccine industry and this has never been more important as we are facing uh vaccine mandates so she's she's been out there educating people for 20 years i think you'll find her to be um absolutely lovely and she's going to talk to us about why to just say no to vaccines so Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, welcome to The Vibe Show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you for letting me be here. Oh, we were just, for everyone else who wasn't in the conversation, we were just having, I guess we've had a mutual admiration <laughs> thing going on for years. And you know, you know, I opted out of vaccinating my children, um, Sherry, mm -hmm. before, before you're, you know, you've been in this for a very long time. You're one of the most vocal, most articulate, most accomplished, most credible voices saying, hey, everybody, yeah, I know your pediatrician says to vaccinate your child, but l let me tell you some information you need to know before you make decisions like that. Um, but I was not, I had made that decision about five years before you got into this. <laughs> um, I was making the difficult decision to stop vaccinating my children when my oldest son got the MMR and had the very classic reaction of immediate, overnight, life-threatening asthma, allergies, eczema, ADHD, the whole thing, which we, we battled for years. And, and it's, you know, the good thing and the bad thing, it was that divine tap on the shoulder that made me change a lot of things about our lifestyle, which we needed to change anyway. And, um, but it was, a, it was a terrible wake up call. And I know that, um, you have talked about, I've, I've heard you say, I wrote this down, that vaccination is the biggest scam ever perpetrated in history. 
And, and you specifically talk about how it's through the vehicle of these young, vulnerable parents. Will you talk a little bit about that in the context of how you came to decide to start speaking up about this, regardless of, you know, possible, you know, career blowback, I'm sure. Well, I got involved in this, Robin, in September of 2000, after I went to the National Vaccine Information Meeting in Washington, D.C., and I sat through four days of listening to scientists and researchers and, and uh, parents and doctors and attorneys and parents of vaccine and their kids telling their whole story and, and laying this whole thing out about problems with vaccines. And I went home from that thinking, how did I miss this? You know, vaccines were never really on my radar screen because I, I grew up in a, in a multi-generational chiropractic family and I grew up on vitamins and chiropractic and I wasn't vaccinated as a kid and I don't think any of my cousins were either. And we were all kind of, we had the age appropriate measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, pertussis. And, and I think that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I'm as healthy as I am today is because my immune system got exer exercise at the appropriate point in time, the appropriate age. And I had horrible measles and had terrible chicken pox like two weeks later. And, and so, you know, I've, I went through all of that and just it never really made my radar screen, I don't think, because it was like, you know, you recover and you move on. They're, you know, the rite of passage illnesses. So when I came home from that, from that conference and I said, I, I guess I should sort of look into this. I mean, how, where should I start? And I decided to start with the CDC because they're supposed to be the, the, head, of the uh, head of the spear on why, why we should vaccinate. And the very first um, article that I read, which was the 1998 version of the General Recommendations of Vaccination, which was just a 42-page, poorly written paper, just like... It was, it was so disgusting to me when I got to the end of it. I said, this can't possibly be the cornerstone of our entire public health pr program, is it? Like, this is it? And one of the things that always amazes me about many of the early on CDC documents, I mean, they've changed a lot of things, I think, because they know that they're being watched now by, by me and Del Bigtree and Bobby Kennedy and those of us in the watchdog sort of group and, and the other layers out from people of that who we've sowed those seeds and they've grown up and, and, and borne fruit is that they know that... Um, um, they're being watched. And what was interesting to me in some of those early papers is that every one of the references was from the CDC. So that means it would be like Sherry Tempany writing a paper, and the only references I had were papers that Sherry Tempany wrote. I mean, <laughs> to me, just that of, of its, uh, in and of itself, right out of the gate went, something's not right here. And so I, I started reading more, and I, I pulled out the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal, and JAMA, and the New England Journal of Medicine, and all of the peer-reviewed journals, and I became really good friends with Kathy Williams, who Kathy Williams and Barbara Lowe Fisher were the two founders of the, of the National Vaccine Information Center, and Kathy and I got to be really good friends, and she said, you know what, Sherry? She said, you're a physician. You can read those documents. You can read their information, and you can use their information against them. There's enough information there about the bad science and, and, the, and the poorly structured program that you need to just go out and expose it. So I've always stuck to those documents and the, the peer-reviewed literature information from the CDC or the FDA or the NIH or, or the World Health Organization, organizations that are, that are supposed to be the respected bodies about vaccination. And I've never gone to like conspiratology.com or I don't get my, my information from blogs on the internet. I mean, I've done 40,000 hours of research and I actually have gone back and documented that. And said, so is that really a real number? It's a real number and it's probably even more than that, to tell you the truth. Wow. 
in, in September, it'll be 20 years that I've done this and I've never ever wavered from my message that vaccines are not safe. They've never been proven to be safe. They don't keep you from getting sick and they definitely do cause harm. And like you said, it's, it's the biggest multi-generational propaganda piece I think that's ever been perpetrated on the human race to assume that you can inject foreign matter, which is what's coming through that needle, foreign matter into some human being, regardless of the, if the human being is, is, um, is an infant, is an adolescent, or an adult, that you can inject foreign matter into a human being and in any way positively impact its health is just, it's just propaganda to the, to the nth degree. Okay, so I know that you've been collecting peer-reviewed papers and last count, last time I heard you say this, you have collected over 12,000 um, pieces of credible peer-reviewed literature talking about the real risks the verifiable risks and the adverse events associated with vaccines. So can you talk about in that collection of 12,000, maybe it's more now, I don't know, that's a lot. Can you talk about some of the things that are in them? Like what are some of the, the common causes? You know, it was many years later that I realized that that is exactly when my son went into this downward spiral, came out of it in the fifth percentile for weight you know, so he got very, very sick in and out of hospitals. I didn't know what was happening. Um, and it would also be interesting to hear you talk about, because you talk about how the vaccine puts the child in the system where they don't necessarily make all the money on the vaccine. It's not necessarily the profit on the vaccine that's the whole point. It's what happens after. And I am the living proof of that. And later in grad school, I got a flu shot because I was forced to, and it was like a, a it was an internship that I had to do and it was on a hospital at the last minute they said you have to get a flu vaccine by then I knew enough and I was like oh no but I I couldn't I couldn't change internships it was like my dream internship and I ended up getting the flu shot I was sick the entire winter I counted I got I got sick 10 times in a row I got the actual influenza and then I got an autoimmune disease you know I got an autoimmune disease that you know took a long time to get nailed down and diagnosed and then get well from it and so I'm vaccine injured my son is vaccine injured. I'm vaccine injured, but I didn't necessarily link those. I doubt it's, I doubt it's a very large percentage of parents who, unless their child is like seizing or vom projectile vomiting, having diarrhea or dies. I had a neighbor whose daughter died uh, two and a half days after her at four, four and a half month um, injections and they never reported it. They never reported it to a doctor. They're very, compliant people and not rock the boat people. But I wonder how many, you know, when, when we've paid out $4 billion to vaccine injured kids, I'm like, how, but how many like me that don't even realize it until years later, I'm like, yeah, that happened at the exact same time. And his health, he was perfectly healthy, baby, breastfed, baby, nine pounds, 23 inches, ends up failure to thrive in and out of hospitals constantly. I never made the connection because I didn't know anything, anything about it. Um, talk about what some of the adverse events are, because people like me who are pretty darn educated, you know, we're, we, we sometimes don't realize it until much later. Well, to your first question about the research library, um, we started building this in about 2007, maybe, that I have a researcher that, that I pay that works for me, she, and she's been with me all these years, and it's really interesting. Cindy and I have actually worked together since 2003. She lives in eastern Pennsylvania, and we've never met. <laughs> 
Really? <laughs> really, we've never met. You, you know who that you know who that reminds me of is um the Laura Laura Hillenbrand who wrote Sea Biscuit and she wrote the the one about Louis Louis Zamperini, what was that called? And he died and they had never met. Like she wrote this runaway bestseller, sold like a hundred million copies of this book. <laughs> Not see what's the one about World War Two? And he's like this World War Two veteran. But she had chronic fatigue syndrome, wrote it from bed, and they've never met each other. That's an amazing story. So you've been working together for thirteen years and you haven't met. Seventeen years. Seventeen <laughs> years. years. <laughs> and uh, and we Skype, we you know, we communicate all the time, you know, we call once in a while, but you know, it's so it just proves it just goes to show you that, you know, virtual employees can work, right? Yeah. And so she's uh she we add we now have it's well over twelve thousand articles and it's either full text articles or links the articles or links to app tracks. So we're not stealing anybody's money, anybody's articles. We're not doing anything illegal. We, we are, what we're doing is we're just scraping the things that are out there in the public domain. And you can't just put into Google, show me anti-vax articles. I mean, you know, that just doesn't work. Yeah. So Cindy reads and skims through all of these different articles pulls them out. We have them completely categorized and it's tenpennyresearchlibrary.com. Um, it's free. All you have to do is register for it. You have to form a reg an account and like click on the link and that will take you in. And at the very, at the top of the first page, it gives you pretty decent and in deep instructions on how to use the search function on that site, because there's two levels of search that can take you down, take you really drill down into what it is that you're looking for. And we have a hugely robust uh, um, index and a very important search functions that are inside the library. And so you can go in there and search around and find things. But the articles that I found that are the most interesting and the most compelling are usually the meta-analysis articles <clears throat> because they'll take like, they'll say, we did, we, we did a meta-analysis on every article that's ever written on, say, the flu shot, since you were talking about the flu shot. And maybe there were, I'm just going to make these numbers up, but let's say there were, there were 4,000 articles ever published in the last 30 years on something to do with flu shots. And then they narrow that down from 4,000 to like, 400 that they needed to analyze and out of those 400 they decided that maybe that maybe 40 of them met the criteria that they were looking for and of those 40 that maybe their the true placebo wasn't exactly right so the entire meta, meta analysis of those 4,000 articles might be down to like 12. <laughs> And then they go through and they look at all the different things and they, they, they use statistics and data. They use statistics to twist the data in any possible way they can to make sure that vaccines are always put in the light of being safe, effective. You know, we've given 17 million of these shots and we only had 50 people die. Therefore, it's safe and effective. You know, when, and that, I mean, that's kind of what you see or you drill down and say, um, there was a meta-analysis like a, I, I did a review because um, of Kawasaki's disease, because that's the big thing now with this coronavirus that they're trying to terrify parents into the reason why they should get this horrible vaccine, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, for their children. And they're, they're now saying, oh, there's this mystery disease called Kawasaki disease is showing up. And we are 100% sure it's associated with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's not. Kawasaki can be from any infection at any age. 
And it's used, and it's a vasculitis. It's the second most common vasculitis seen in children. And what vasculitis is, it's inflammation of your blood vessels and primarily the arteries. And when it's a really severe case of inflammation inside of your arteries, the arteries can actually get an aneurysm on them. And that's pretty typical and pretty classic of Kawasaki's disease. And the aneurysms tend to be uh, um, aneurysms of the blood vessels around the heart more, more commonly. And so there was a meta-analysis that was done on Kawasaki disease in three major databases around the world, two from Europe and the VAERS database from the U.S. And over an 11-year period of time, they found about 5,500 cases of vasculitis, of any type of vasculitis in this database. Of that 5,500, there were about 870 that were diagnosed as Kawasaki's disease. So 870 children were officially diagnosed with Kawasaki's disease over an 11-year period of time, and it was a fraction of the total number of vasculitis that was found in this database. So we're talking, you know, 10 cases a year, maybe, on global basis that kids are being diagnosed with Kawasaki's, and it can be from any type of pathogen, but primarily viruses. And what was really, really interesting is that there are about a dozen other articles that I found about vasculitis, specifically Kawasaki disease that develops after a vaccine. It can be Prevnar, it can be tetanus, it can be Hib, um, it can be um, MMR, it can be the meningitis vaccine, it can even be the rotavirus vaccine, which is an oral vaccine, can, can show up, kids can end up with Kawasaki's disease after a vaccine. But yet the mainstream media has found this mystery vasculitis injury that we know it's SARS-CoV-2, and so therefore your kids have to be lined up to get this horrible shot. I, yeah, so, I, I feel like that's you know one of the things that they'll use to, I think I've, I've gone out there and said this on Facebook mm -hmm. that I think that that's how they'll really hype the second wave because it's really dying down and you've got states like Florida that are full of elderly people and they hardly even shut down for a little minute and, and they're seeing cases continue to go down. So it's, they're losing a little bit of uh, the momentum behind the whole, we got to lock ourselves in our house to keep, to, to, you know, decrease the cases. I mean, flatten the curve. That wasn't even a thing. We've already figured that out. I think my audience is, is, is up to speed on that. But I, I think they're going to use the children. They're going to, they're, that's how they can really get us fearful again this fall when they go to really finish, finish us off, all of us small businesses and finish us off. That is the appropriate language. Yeah. So what, what do you, when you look at all these meta analyses, that is absolutely amazing. Fantastic. You've spent 40,000 hours. You know what they say? If you put your 10,000 hours in, that's the person you want to listen to. You've put four times that much time in. You're basically the PubMed. You've created your own <laughs> biomedical research database of, vaccine stuff. I'm going to, I want to get in there. I'm sure I'll be completely overwhelmed by how much information is in there. So what are some of the themes that you think parents should know just to go back to one of, I usually ask questions in a big giant dump of questions, but then I usually will come back and remind you, you know, it's my fault that I interview that way. It must be really overwhelming to whoever I'm talking to. <laughs> Which one of those five questions do you really want me to answer first, right? You just take one. And if I think if you haven't covered them all, I'll come back. Um, that's why I sit here and take notes. Cause I, I know I do that. So what are some of the things that for somebody who's not deep in the medical freedom movement and who hasn't been studying, you know, vaccine toxicity issues for years, what, what do parents, what do people need to know? Grandparents, now I'm looking at being a grandmother. I'm not one yet, but like, what are some of the 
what, what do you learn from these meta-analyses? Because you're right, meta-analyses, if people don't know what it is, they take all these different studies on the same subject and you look at them all and you find out what commonalities they are and they're just so much more, more uh, powerful, more meaningful than any one study that could have major research flaws, et cetera, right? So what do you learn? Well, what I learn is that they, that they eliminate they eliminate the adverse events with a stroke of a pen. They literally do it with a stroke of the pen. And the first article that I'll never forget that I read, this was years ago, it was looking at the, um, the new HIB, uh, a new HIB vaccine that came out and that they were looking at um, a combination vaccine versus like the HIB, oh, no, they were looking at HIB versus Combivax, which is HIB plus hepatitis B. And how they generally set these studies up is like they, if they bring the new HIB to market, they, let's say they, they do 800, they, there are 800 children who are enrolled in the study and they're 800 healthy children. They have no comorbidities, they're on no medication. And what's important about that is, is that once the vaccine gets pulled to market, they give it to everybody, irrespective of, the, of how bad. In fact, the pediatricians will say, we've got this new vaccine. Your kid has a seizure disorder. We really should give it to them because we don't want them to get sick with this infection. But wait a minute, none of the research was ever done on children with seizure disorders. So it's a complete experiment. We only ever tested new vaccines on completely healthy children and adults. So that's the one fallacy of the studies. The second is if they take, the, take, let's say, 800 kids, 400 of them get the Hib, and then they're comparing it to Combivax, which is Hib and Hepatitis B. So they would, they, they would look at those. So you're not really using a true placebo. You're using another known vaccine, and you're looking at the side effects comparison of those two vaccines, not what does this new vaccine look like compared to a shot of sterile water or something that's completely inert. And CDC says that's, that's an, that it's ethics. You can't, ethically, we can't deny people a vaccine. Like, what do you, what do you think of that? You buying into that? They come up with excuses for everything to justify their, their bad behavior. You know, it's like, oh, we're, we're going to give someone a shot. We can't just, we have to give them something of a known benefit. But, you know, scientifically, that makes no sense. And actually, in 2016, there were new a research criteria that came out that said that going forward with studying new vaccines, that is completely unethical unethical, and it will not be approved to set up a control group where you're using a true placebo. You so if you're bringing a new hepatitis B vaccine to market, you must compare it to a, a vaccine, a hepatitis B vaccine that we have already said is safe and effective. So, but what gets even so because, worse is it, because then you're getting all the same adjuvants, right? Like, well, you're getting, not necessarily, but you're getting some toxic adjuvants in both. So it's not a placebo. Well, correct. And you're getting all kinds of different things. So in that particular study, when they would go down and they crutch the data, what ends up happening is like there's 400 kids that start and then 100 of them drop out after the first shot because they have side effects. And then 100 of them drop out after the second shot. And then 100 of them drop out after the third shot because they always do a series of three. So in your study arm, you've, you started with 400 children. Now you're down to 100. They crunch the data on the 100 that are left. And when they look at that 100, they'll say, you know, 98% uh, created antibodies, 50% um, had a sore arm, and there were three deaths. Study investigators concluded that the deaths had nothing to do with the vaccine. They negated those three deaths with a stroke of a pen. Yeah, when I was, I was telling you about a neighbor of mine, when I was raising my children and they were small and the neighbor's, the, the neighbor's baby died, she died when she was, because she got her shots at four and a half months. She's taking a nap on a Sunday afternoon. They went in to wake her up, she, she was dead. They called it SIDS. But here's the crazy thing is, even if she had wanted to report it, 
this baby had died 48 hours and change, like several more hours in addition. Am I right? I think you've testified in vaccine court. It doesn't even count unless the baby dies within 48 hours. 49 hours, not related to the vaccine. Am I wrong about that? Um, you're, you're correct with a little bit of a caveat. What they're t you can still report it. You could report it up to three years later. You could still report that the, these vaccines happened and then my, my baby died 49 hours later. That is always a reportable event. But what you can't do is make a claim in the, in, the, in, the, in the vaccine court, which is the federal court of claims, to try to get compensation for that because they have a table that's def that has all these strict definitions on it so that you have to have died, let's say, within the 48 hours in order to make a claim and to go through vaccine court to try to get compensation for that death. If you're outside that window, you can't make a valid claim. So you can report it. It is not compensatable unless you fit within all of these completely arbitrary little little rules little criteria on the vaccine table yep okay so let's go back to strokes of the pen i'm sure that just omitting all the people who drop out who would make your study look really bad isn't the only way that they whitewash the data is there more well the stroke of the pen i think is really significant and, and worth repeating because you, you see this in a lot of these vaccine studies where kids either had horrible outcomes they had a horrible side effect or they died and then it, the next sentence is study investigators concluded that the death or the horrible, uh, horrible reaction had nothing to do with the vaccine. Conclusion of the study, vaccines are safe and effective and should be used on everybody. So they literally just line it out and move on. And, it's, and, you, and I've read thousands of those studies and they all have it some element. They just negate by the study investigators says so that it's not any, that the, whatever happened didn't have anything to do with the vaccine. So then when you have this whole study and the study might be you know, written up in a journal, it might be eight, 12 pages long. And then, but at the beginning of that study, you know, if you've ever flipped through a medical journal, you know there's the, abs, there's the title, the abstract, and then the one or two conclusion of the abstract <laughs> that's underneath it. And most physicians only read the title of the, of the study and the conclusion of the abstract, and then just flip on through because they're busy you have to, and if they, and if they see a title that they're not interested in or might cause them to have cognitive dissonance, they just flip right on by it. And then they just read the conclusion of the abstract. I cannot tell you how many studies I have read over these nearly 20 years that when you read the whole study, you go, how in the world did they come up with that conclusion based on this set of data? It's just shocking to me. And I think that, you know, as long as the, the, the researchers actually can conclude vaccines are safe and effective and necessary, they will get their next set of funding for what they're doing for their next, their, their next um, research project. And as far as the researchers go, they feel like they have a clean conscience about that because all the data is in there. Every single thing that was done is in there. If somebody takes the time and bothers to read it and crunch the numbers, whether the data was set up right, whether the control group was set up right, they can have a clean conscience because they put it all out there. So then they, I think they feel, and I'm probably putting words in their mouth or in their brain, but I think they feel like it's not their responsibility to force the doctor to read it. Their responsibility is to do the research. And if they have to fudge a little bit on the conclusion so that they can get their next grant to do their next set of research, hey, I, I put it out, all out there. It's not my fault that you didn't read it. So, so the abstracts aren't, very, aren't always very representative of what's in the study. Hardly ever. Wow. I mean, I would say, I don't know, of, of the ones that I've read and really drilled down on and yellow highlighted and stuff like that, I would say 
I don't know, I'd be generous and say 25% really represent what the data actually shows. Why does the peer review process not re include make sure that the abstract is representative of the actual data outcomes? Because have you ever read about the scam of peer review? Judy Mikovits calls it competitor review. Probably, but the, ones, the one study that they actually did, and this was years ago, this was probably in the 80s, but it's always stuck in my head about peer review. They took a very, very well done, I mean, it was structured and it was really well done study. All the numbers, everything were exactly a really well done study that should have been sailed through peer review with A plus letters, really, really good. So they took it and they put the drug name in there all the way down. Then they took the drug name out and they put the name of an herb in there. That was the only thing that changed. They took out drug and they put in herb. Everything else was the same. Not one number changed. And the, the drug was absolutely, it was perfect. Everything's done. The herb, no, everybody got rejected. It said the data was fraudulent. Nothing was done correctly. And to me, that was so obvious of the bias of the reviewers. The bias of the reviewer. So if that can happen with herb versus medication, it can happen between medication and medication and different companies. And then you always have to look at what are the conflicts, the stated conflicts of interest of the people doing the review. And just because I say, yes, I am a consultant from Merck. I've declared my conflict of interest. Therefore, I can just keep doing what I was doing. As long as it's a declared conflict, it doesn't take you off the review board. It just says, now I have declared it, so therefore I can proceed. Yeah, the, the clear conflict of interest, but also just the laziness. You know, the laziness. <laughs> I, I think everybody assumes, everybody assumes that these studies, would, if they get the rubber stamp or the approval process of the peer review process, that it must be good. It must be good research. I have one to tell you, and I have a feeling you're going to tell me that's nothing new. I've seen that before, but I'm, I'm curious if I'm telling you something you haven't heard before. So at the very beginning of this, so three months ago, I was out there screaming, like you guys were, were burning the world down and this virus, like the actual, not PubMed, but a different biomedical search engine in China says that the de their death rate is between 0.04% and 0.12%. And I was sharing links and I was speaking up and people were just pelting me with rotten tomatoes and um, lots of people angry with me, but... This is way back when, and, and a friend of mine here locally, I live in Park City, Utah, which is a ski town, and she reached out to me, and, and her husband is, is an ER doctor, and she's heard me talk about vaccines before and my concerns about them, and she said, hey, Robin, um, my husband wants me to get, um, she, he wants me to get the flu vaccine because of this big, because of this COVID-19 outbreak, because in the middle of March, they told us in Park City, even though it would later come out that we were the lowest infection rate and lowest death rate in the country. But at the time, in the middle of March, they said that we had the same per capita infection rate as New York City. So they shut us down. They shut us down early. They shut us down hard. Um, and so my friend texted me and said, my husband wants, her ER doc husband wants me to get the, the flu shot. And I said, well, do, do you understand why that is not going to help you against COVID-19? Like the flu shot doesn't even particularly help you against the flu. I mean, there's like maybe, you know, you have a hundred percent chance that that flu vaccine is going to harm you like trillions of your cells and, and, and possibly long-term harm you. And you have about a 10% chance that it even prevents the flu. It for sure doesn't prevent uh, COVID-19. And she said, well, what he's saying is, and you could probably fill in the blank what the doctors are saying, like get the flu vaccine so that, you don't have that, what, what, would, you, would you be more likely to get hit by a lightning bolt so that you don't get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time, which would be really, really terrible. 
So she goes, what, what can you give me so that I can argue with my husband? And I said, well, there's this study that people that in the military, those who got the flu vaccine were 36% more likely to then that winter get some respiratory illness. And I think there was eight or nine different respiratory illnesses. And she goes, could you dig that up for me? So I did. And I sent her the, the PubMed link to that study. And Sherry, I went back a couple of weeks ago, somebody was saying, hey, Robin, in your in your interview of Dr. Mikevitz, you mentioned this study where people are 36% more likely to get any other respiratory infection if they've had the flu vaccine. Do you have the, the link to that? So I just thought, well, the fastest way I could get to it is I could go in my text history with my girlfriend. So I go in the text history and I get the link and Sherry, they had changed the study that that URL pointed to. And it was a completely different study that showed no higher risk of getting a respiratory infection if you got the flu. Have you heard of that before, that PubMed actually forwards URLs to a different study when this one's getting attention that isn't in their narrative? They do it all the time. What? All the time. And, they, um, and, and now there's a new PubMed. They've changed it again. And we really believe, and that's why we're going back through the 12,000 articles that we have, and we're actually physically downloading them into files because we think the next round of they're going to be removing every single Thank stitch you. of published information that doesn't go with the narrative. And do they redirect other things? Yes, because we have a Cindy, uh, Cindy uses something, it's called a, a, link, a link checker. And it looks and it goes through your site because obviously this is a massive site, right? It's got 12,000 links in it and, and actually more than that. Um, and, and it goes through and just says, says if any of the links are broken. So she has to go in and fix the links. She spends like two days a month that that's all she does is, is fix the links because they move them. They move stuff off of the FDA website. They move stuff off of the CDC website. Excuse me. They move stuff off of CBER. They redirect it to other things. And, and so, you know, you think you're going here to see why like what you said, that that was a military study that was actually done. And it was a 36% increased risk of developing a coronavirus infection, mm. not just across the board 36% infection, was specifically to coronavirus. Yes, you also had an increased risk of developing like, like, um, 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 like the pneumo, um, metanumo, um, metanumonia virus. And there were some other types of viruses that you had an increased risk of, but the 36% was coronaviruses and it was done, it was a military study. So does that surprise me? Because there, here's something that didn't go with the narrative. And I can tell you, there's lots of things that I found that if I, if I think this is something I really want, I don't, I don't bookmark them anymore. I download the whole study. I download the entire thing and save it into a folder because it's going to be gone. And you used to be able to use the way back when machine and be able to go back and find things from like 2000, 2002, or even before that, they have removed thousands of those studies. You can't, they are not available. So it's, it's sort of a standard in my industry and those of us that kind of do this kind of research and look at this stuff all the time, that if you found a study or a PowerPoint presentation or a PDF file or something like that, that was available, download it, have it on your just you know, get a terabyte external hard drive and, and set up some folders and over there because it's going to be gone because that's why they call it, um, they now call it um, virtual book burning. That what they're doing is actual virtual book burning that anything that is not going with the propaganda narrative of vaccines are safe, effective, 
necessary, mandated. And if you say anything against them, I mean, they floated bills all around the world, most recently in Canada. It didn't get passed, but they floated these bills that if you said anything adverse or negative about vaccines, that you should be charged with a felony. A felony. There was a, an article that came out of Australia just last week that supposedly the head of the American Medical Association said that anyone that questions vaccines and is anti-science should expect the full force of the government and the entire medical profession to come down on you for even questioning or pointing out anything that is absolutely not true and doesn't go with the narrative. It's virtual book burning. It's actual virtual book burning. And it hasn't just been the vaccine sector. It's been people saying bad things or questioning things like 5G or GMOs or even health and nutrition sectors. They're taking them down because what do you mean that you think vitamin D is good for you and can, can prevent cancers and stuff like that? That's fake news. And they'll stamp it right on your, on your Instagram page, on your Facebook page. You know, it's so crazy is that we've, we've all watched Tony Fauci, who has become one of the most powerful people in the world right now. And um, you know that we've never heard Fauci or Burks as they, you know, supposedly lead our nation through this horrible pandemic. We've never heard them say a single word about ways that you can support or boost your immune system. I found an article from 2016 where Tony Fauci says that he takes a thousand milligrams of vitamin C a day and talks about stuff he does to support his own immune system. He knows he knows that you can support the immune system, but whoever is calling the shots here and wants him to keep people completely focused on fear and this hypothetical vaccine that will make some people many billions of dollars, and he's, he's definitely going to be one of them. He's going to be one of them, and people don't, people don't realize that these people who are supposed to be watching out for our health have conflicts of interest. They're going to make a lot of money when they come up with something to inject us with. You just always have to remember, you know, Robin, that, you know, the money is in the medicine, not in the cure. Yeah. The money is in the medicine, not in the cure or in the prevention, you know, and that's why all of the stuff, that's why they scream so loudly about parents who do not want to vaccinate their kids. They cannot continue to grow a $1.3 trillion industry on the backs of unvaccinated, completely healthy kids who are not on daily medications. They're not going through all of this, you know, all these therapies, OTPT, speech therapy, food therapy, sensory integration stuff, teaching kids how to swallow food. I mean, when in life did we ever have to do this? Because, and, and so the, I always say that the vaccines are the economic loss leader of the entire medical industrial complex. They are the loss leader. And, and so, and I said, you were talking about, about vaccine injuries and about who would have ever put that together. And is that I, it's my personal belief after all of these years of study and everything that I've looked at, that every single vaccine causes harm, every single one at some level, whether it's your mitochondria, it's intracellular things, it's in your cytosol, it may shave just a couple of IQ points off of those kids' brains, it may make them just a little more uncoordinated, you know, so it does different things. Every single one, because of what's coming through that needle and what's in them, I mean, the, all the aluminum, the tons of aluminum that's in them, the multi-dose flu shots still have mercury in them. Uh, the, there's four or five known carcinogens. You're taking cow blood and chicken fibroblasts and eggs and cells from aborted fetal tissue, and you're taking human albumin, and you're throwing all of that in because a vaccination day is usually seven shots now, seven, and you're throwing that into a 10-pound baby. And there's no, there's no reason whatsoever for it except that that's when they have access to the baby, am I right? It's exactly right. 
I mean, the, the, uh, the two, four, and six month uh, vaccination schedule was set up back in the day when there were only three vaccines. There was up through 1985, there was only three vaccines, MMR, DPT and polio. And not every kid got every shot and a lot of kids got measles, mumps and rubella so they didn't even give it. But it was in 1986 when they passed the, injury the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act that gave them complete liability to produce their dirty, filthy products. And they have no incentive whatsoever to make something cleaner, more safe. They were supposed to, by that law, every two years, retest the vaccines and do something to make them safer. And in the last 33 years, they've never done that once. There's no incentive to do anything safer. And then beginning, that was in 86. And then beginning in 1991 was the big ramp up of the schedule. 91 is when they added hepatitis B at birth. They added the Hib vaccine in 91. Then they, then they added um, chickenpox in 95. They added uh, uh, Prevnar in 2000, which started out as Prevnar 7 and then went to Prevnar 13. Then they've added rotavirus. They've added hepatitis A. Um, they've, um, they've just loaded up the schedule and they all put that into the pediatric schedule because the Injury Compensation Act only covers vaccines given to children. And it's the number one reason why they put the flu shot into six-month-old babies. Had nothing to do with keeping those kids from getting the flu. Nothing. It was so that they could get compensation, um, umbrella, security, uh, immunity over top of the flu shot with kids. And it expanded their market share from just adults into all of those kids. You know, and there's about 4 million live births per year in the United States. So how would you like to have a company? How would you like it, Robin, if your company had government guaranteed 4 million customers every year to take your products, whether somebody wanted them or not? Yeah, there's going to be a huge rush to market. Um, every drug company is going to want to get in on it because it used to be really um, scary and cost prohibitive to develop a drug when then for years and years and years you're getting sued for all the side effects of it that we all know that drugs you know the supreme court has said uh that vaccines are inherently not safe um and and so now that they have total immunity and they don't even have to show up to vaccine court why wouldn't they just bring as many as many vaccines to market as they possibly can my understanding is there's 270 vaccines in development right now that are in the final stage of clinical trials? They're not in the final stage, but there are 270 in the developmental pipeline. I mean, they're at various stages of those clin clinical developments. You know? I'm sure they won't all come out the other end, but do we need more than 72 shots by the time you're 18? Do we need any? Do we need any? Do we yeah. need any? And the answer is no. You know, I always say this thing that's, you know, the baby, <laughs> this doesn't happen, okay? Baby born, and God says, oh, I forgot the immune system. Hurry, vaccinate. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen. You know, we were born intact. Babies are born with an immune system. It's their Th1 innate immune system that it's born with. And the to those toll-like receptors, T-O-L-L-like, those toll-like receptors were first discovered in fruit flies in about two, um, 2009. They were and then they were discovered in humans. A toll-like receptor four was first the first one that they named. We are aware that there are 10 toll-like receptors now that they've discovered, but they got the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Immunology in 2011, Robin. This is recent science, really recent science. That should blow up 
the entire vaccine industry and the whole concept of injecting foreign matter to develop antibodies, it needs to go away. Because the Th1 receptors, those toll-like receptors that live on the surface of all of our cells, they, they mod, they, they're, they're our hypervigilant receptors, our God-given immune system. And all day long, 24-7, 365, they're just scanning the universe, seeing things that come by, come by, come by. And they know what's self versus non-self. And they know that these viruses and bacteria that are part of our microbiomes, these are the good guys. And then suddenly they'll go, oh, that one, that one isn't supposed to be here. They give out a whistle, which is like blowing out some cytokines and say, hey, white blood cell, macrophage, come on, get rid of this guy over here, get rid of it. Go, go gobble it up, make it go away. This happens a millions of times all day long because of the viruses and bacteria that get into our bloodstream from like brushing our teeth, from having a bowel movement, from having sex, from paper cuts on your hands, from the food you eat if you've got leaky gut. These things are getting in there all day long and they recognize those things by pattern recognition. It's not a receptor issue. It's just like, I recognize that that vibration, that vibration should not be here. Pattern recognition. And the first time I read that, Robin, it made me cry. It made me cry that it was so beautiful, so our creator made us so beautiful to keep that we have this intact thing. If we take care of it, we don't need any of this stuff injected into us for any reason. That's why I say it's the biggest scam ever perpetrated on the human race. We do not need it. This was literally only discovered or at least published in the last 10 years. And so if we're injecting something beneath that beautiful immune capacity, we're bypassing it where that benefit that we were born with is obviated, right? Yes. Mm. And crushed and crunched and crushed and crushed. And I always look at these little babies and they're, that are, they're just pounding them with these vaccines, pounding them with them. I mean, there's, there's a thing that's called Combo 10. And there's actually 10 vaccines that you get multiple doses of that you're supposed to have all doses of those by age of two. And if you have, in a, in a pediatric practice, let's say there's a thousand kids in that pediatric practice. If 63% of those kids are fully vaccinated on that combo 10 schedule, which is two, two vaccines, two shots of chicken pox, two shots of MMR, you know, all of the D, uh, DPT, all of that stuff. If they get all of those shots, if 63% of that pediatrician's practice is, is fully vaccinated by that combo 10 schedule, by the age of two, the Blue Cross Blue Shield can pay a $400 per kid bonus. So if anybody thinks it's not about the money, guess again, it's all about the money. Because if every single child with every single vaccine gets something, eczema, asthma, allergies, even if it's a mild form, it doesn't have to be as horribly severe as what your child was, there's still customers for life of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, my son was on five, five courses of liquid steroids in the year after his vaccine injury constant bronchodilator drugs we had to get up in the middle of the night when and decide are we, are we racing him to the emergency room are we calling the ambulance what are we doing here so there's the bronchodilators the liquid steroids which they told us when they handed me the fifth the fifth course said this is guaranteed to stun his growth five five courses in a year and i said and i just handed it back to the doctor well give me something else then like that that's that's how little i knew at the time when i was 27 years old is well what else you got and he was like, and plus then there was the antibiotics, but you know, getting educated about all this stuff, anybody listening to this is just miles ahead. Cause I didn't have a Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. I did, I did go read Neil Z. Miller's book and Dr. Randall. Um, Nushwander, Nushwander. 
new new swat or something like that yeah, yeah he's got a tongue twister last name yeah but i know he, he does it's like german or something and i read the books and, and that empowered me to say no when everybody around me said and i learned very quickly don't tell anybody don't tell my family don't tell my husband's family don't tell my friends because all of a sudden you're a bad mom you're a bad mom but but you know what i was just like it wasn't even courageous for me to opt out it was just like I'm terrified of what will happen here. Like, I just, I, I don't want any foreign bodies. I got to detox this kid. We went to a plant-based whole foods, organic diet. We did, we did so many good things that needed to happen that have blessed our lives in, in thousands of ways. But I, I just want to ask you for confirmation of this. We're going to move on, but I want to ask you the things that you talked about, how with the, the stroke of a pen, they can just eliminate all the kids who died. A lot of the kids who died eliminate a lot of, a lot of the, um, kids who had adverse events, they sort of take the study and drop a whole bunch of people out so that their study looks better. Um, we talked about how PubMed will actually just, well, this study's getting too much attention and there's a bunch of people out there linking to it. Let's just have it linked to a different study and it's a great idea to download it. And I'm really, really glad you're doing that work because that's the exact thought I had is I wish I downloaded this because now, you know, the people I'm trying, I'm, and I went on Facebook and said, this used to be a different study and, and one person was just like, yeah, how do we know you're not lying? Exactly. So I'm glad you're doing that work, that work, but confirm or deny, we have not even scratched the surface of the data games and the fraud that we could talk about if we spent two hours talking about all the fraud you've seen in the way these different entities report data and even investigate data. Am I right? Absolutely. The conflicts of interest are just amazing. And there's a quote from Mark Twain that I always butcher. I never get it exactly right, but it's something to the effect of, you know, numbers don't lie, but liars can use numbers, you know, and so they can twist the data and use, it's always amazing to me, all these different statistical ways that you can crunch data. It's like, who came up with those, with those, those formulas and who says they're right? I mean, isn't it just a way to like manipulate the data and the numbers to, until you use the various different types of chi-square and this and that, and you use things, you, you keep picking the right one until it gives you the information, the data that you want. I mean, I remember way back in college when I took statistics for, uh, and it was like, I just couldn't get my head around it because it just seemed like it was, you just had to pick the right formula until you, it, you, you found the one that gave you the conclusion that you wanted. Yeah. And, it, and I just couldn't, <laughs> I, I actually ended up dropping out of that class because it was like, I'm never going to pass this class because none of this makes sense to me, you know? And so, uh, so, but I do believe that it's really true. And then you look at all the, the double speak fraud. I mean, look at that whole, um, that whole video sequence that Dell Bigtree did for Highwire, you know, uh, was right before Christmas where they had all that information inside of that big vaccine meeting that was happening in, in Geneva. I don't know if you saw that, but they recorded all of these people who are like the big wigs of the entire industry, the people from the Brighton collaboration and from the World Health Organization and Gavi and UNICEF and, 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 and um, Sieber and FDA, they were all there, all of the usual cast of characters. The, all the vaccine bullies. The people, who make decisions about these unelected bureaucrats who make all these decisions about vaccinating the world. And they were sitting there and it still blows my mind when they said, yeah, you know, you know, the size of our studies are too small to really come to any conclusion. And another one said, yeah, maybe we should do some studies on that. Maybe we, yeah, maybe we should really look into that. 
And another guy said, yeah, adjuvants, adjuvants, those are the bad things. Those are horrible bad things. And if we could make vaccines without adjuvants, it would just be really super great, but we can't. And so we just use aluminum because it's the only one we got. And if you use the rest of them, you know there's going to be problems. Well, then why do you use the rest of them? And the gal who was like the head of that committee who said, yeah, we don't have very good reporting data in third world countries at all. And we really don't know how to explain to parents when they, their kids get vaccinated and they die. We really don't know what to say to them. And they were saying things like, you know, this one doctor who said, well, you know, in my country, you know, we use, say, DPT, but we get it from various different manufacturers and the ingredients are different. And how do we, has anybody ever looked at if I use it in the same child, if this round of shots, I get it from this manufacturer and the next round, I get it from this manufacturer. Has anybody ever looked to see if there's any conflicts with those different types of chemicals and things that are in there? No, we, we, nobody's looked at that, but maybe that would be a good idea. Maybe we should. Billions and billions and billions of doses of vaccines in kids all over the world, giving them shots of stuff they don't even need. And then, you know, Peter Abbey studies that have come out in the last couple of years that have shown that if they've gotten the DPT vaccine in Africa, he did his studies in Gambia, and, and he said, nobody's ever looked at, after we go through and we do these big vaccination campaigns, I mean, what's the result? I mean, has everybody ever looked? So he went back and he looked, and he looked at these big populations of kids, and what he found was that, yes, the incidence rate of DPT, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, was down, but the kids, the kids had a four to five times increased incidence of death mm. from other types of ind indigenous, um, indigenous types of infections that under other circumstances, the kids would have just gotten and just been like a, something they had because they lived in Gambia. Four to five times increased risk of death in kids that had been given a DPT vaccine. Nobody ever looked at this. How many years have we been doing this? How many decades? I mean, Bill Gates put up $10 billion in 2010, put it into the World Health Organization for, to, to create the decade of vaccines between 2010 and 2020. And that's why we're running up against this brick wall right now, Robin, is because they, they had 10 years and billions of dollars to build tracking systems, to build all of these other ways to like, um, all these other vaccine mandates that they wanna do. You know, SB 277 in California and the bill that they did and they passed in New York that took away the, the religious exemption in New York and took away the philosophical exemption in California were trial balloons. I personally think, and it breaks my heart to say this, that I think beginning probably mid-August, we are going to see the tsunami of all tsunamis of pushing mandatory vaccination and they won't push it as a vaccine mandate. They'll, take it as, they'll push it as taking away your right to refuse, which in essence is a mandate. And it's going to be the worst ever this fall. Yeah, well, one thing I'm really concerned about is that uh, HR two six or HR six 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 six. If it comes through the House and it gets passed by the Senate, if President Trump signs it into law, that we will have the federal government who goes and borrows from the Federal Reserve, which is not anything to do with our federal government, but is a bunch of foreign billionaire bankers. I hope everyone knows that. So putting us into massive financial bondage to give $100 billion to all 50 states so that they can go and give to schools and uh, schools and medical facilities and churches this money. And all of them, of course, are broken right now and on the brink of, of bankruptcy, including hospitals, and say, here's a bunch of money. This will save you. And then later say, um, we're not going to give you the next wave because the $100 billion really just gets us through 2020, right? This just gets contact tracing started. And then the, the bill actually says, and however much more we need for ongoing years. I mean, it's like Homeland Security. They're never going to take that money back. You know, they're never going to defund it. They're never going to 
cancel all those people's jobs. That's not what government does. They never do that. And so then what they can do is in 20, you know, 21 or whatever, say, oh, we're going to give you some money, but this time there's strings attached. We're going to defund you if you don't agree that nobody can come to your church or to your school, high school, college, whatever, or to your medical facility unless they got the chip. Or your your restaurant or your sporting goods or go to a basketball game or a baseball game, go to a public park where you have to go in and buy a ticket to go into a public park. It's everything, Robin. It's everything. And it's all, I mean, I heard on the radio yesterday morning, I mean, I live in Cleveland, Ohio, and I heard on yesterday morning that, that CVS and Walgreens are forming a partnership to set up testing centers at their various locations. And what the testing centers are, are, are ways, it to, and I've said this publicly and I mean it, it's like Bill Gates's wet dream, man. It's a way for him to collect every human de- specimen of DNA on the planet. Because, it, because that collection goes with your name, your address, probably your social security number, you know, your credit card information. I mean, whatever they're collecting and all of that goes into the database so that they can then match up, do all that testing on the DNA, DNA sequencing, so they can, t- they can pair that up with individual vaccines. They can pair that up with um, uh, uh, specific types of medications, with artificial intelligence, with the whole transhumanism movement. It's just a stepwise approach to get you there. And the testing, I wrote an article on my website. My website is vaxter.com, V as in Victor, A-X-X-T-E-R. And if you go to vaxter.com, I wrote a series of three articles and I'm hoping I'll get the fourth one done this weekend. But the three articles, the first one was called, the title is um, Same Playbook, Different Virus. We've done this before. The second one was about the PREP Act and how the PREP Act of 2005 puts the 1986 Injury Compensation Act on steroids. And the third one is testing. What are we doing? Because the testing is, means nothing. I, I couldn't even say, before I wrote the article, I spent about seven, six, seven hours on the FDA website, which is actually better than the CDC website in terms of information. And they are actually on the FDA willing to be honest and go, we don't know. We really don't know. We really don't have any idea. And so when you, when you do this, I mean, do you want to be positive? I mean, if, you're, if you have a PCR positive, what does that mean? It means you've been exposed to the virus and you've got a little string of RNA. It doesn't mean you have the whole virus. It means you have a little snip of it. And if you just have the little snip of the virus, you are not contagious. You're not infective. You are a healthy person whose body's tried to clear the virus, but it's positive. It will only be positive if you have tested, you tested yourself with PCR, RT, which is reverse transcriptase PCR, within the first four days of symptoms. If you've had symptoms for 10 days, the accuracy of that test goes down to like 50%. And if you've completely recovered a few months ago and you say, yeah, I want to get tested to see if I'm positive so that I can get my ID card that says I'm positive. If it's more than 30 days out, the chance of that test being positive is less than 1%. So the, the PCR testing means nothing. It means you've been exposed to a coronavirus, not even the, the pandemic coronavirus, one of the 36 coronaviruses out there, four of which specifically cause illness in human every year. So does P, do you want to be positive or negative on PCR? Well, if you're negative on PCR, it means you've not been exposed. So does that mean that you are at risk of getting an infection? And does that mean you need to stay quarantined, stay in your house and wear gloves and never talk to anybody? Don't, you know, keep your distance. Don't sleep with your husband. I mean, is that the next thing they're going to do is come knock on people's bedrooms and say if you're sleeping in the same bed? I mean, so it's like, you know, it's so do you want to be positive or negative? Nobody knows. Nobody says for sure. 
They do know if it's positive though, that it might be one of the other coronaviruses. It may not be the, the pandemic virus. So then if the PCR stuff is kind of, well, we don't know what to do with this. How about serology testing? Let's do a little finger stick blood test and check your antibody level. Well, if your IgG antibody level is elevated, that means you've had an infection by a coronavirus somewhere in your life. And since coronaviruses have been around for 60 years, six zero, 60 years, and they cause up to 40% of influenza-like illness year after year globally, you could have had a, a, the flu caused by coronavirus seven years ago, and maybe or five years ago, or even last year, and have a positive IgG antibody, which it could have been to that coronavirus, but not to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic virus. So what does that mean? It means you've had an infection. Or if you yeah. got the flu vaccine, right? Then you could get a false positive. You could get a false positive on that. And they know that the, the, the uh, PCR testing has up to 20% up to false negatives, that maybe you had it, but the test is negative. So the testing stuff is a total mess, total mess. And we've caught the CDC co-mingling data. We've already caught them that they've taken the PCR data and they've mixed it in with the serology data. So it can make it like the numbers look worse than what they really are. So they mix all that stuff together. And then they report it out on an individual and we, on an individual state basis. And we are making life-changing public policy on testing that means nothing. And the data, even this far in, has already been manipulated and made a mess of. But we are, we are training people to be contact tracers to test for what and to know who you've been by and we're going to maybe snatch your kid out of your house and take them somewhere we don't know where or take you I mean do we not how soon we forget our history I mean don't we remember like the you know the the Hitler youth crowd that they trained all the all the Hitler the Hitler youth brigade the the brown shirts to train them to snitch and on their parents who may have been talking about revolting Mao's cultural revolution same thing they got people snitching on their own inside their own home to yes. to prove your loyalty to the regime and here we are here and we here are. we are so the testing so all these people that now they're going to say I mean I just got an email yesterday from a friend of mine who um, she's she's in her maybe mid seventies and she needs to have a cataract surgery. Well, they've waited until after, you know, she, she got diagnosed with that before, um, before all this stuff started. And so she waited. And so now she's like, she was going to go and get it set up. And they said, well, you cannot, we will not do your cataract until you've been tested to see if you're positive for COVID-19. And she said, I've been doing that. She, they said, well, sorry, we, we're not going to, we, we cannot do your surgery unless we know whether or not you're positive. But we don't even know what positive means, Robin. I mean, that's the whole point is, do you want to be positive or do you want to be negative? And which of those tests do you want to be positive or negative on? So, and, I've, and I've got some friends who are really pushing for this home testing. Well, the home testing kits that are out there now that have been approved by the FDA, they're home collection tests, but they're not home testing. You have to do your own swab, you put it in a little container and send it off to the lab somewhere so they still get your DNA. And then three to five days later, they send you back with a result. Well, what if they missed up the specimens? That's happened before. Yeah, pe people keep asking me, well, don't, shouldn't I go get this antibody test so that you know, I can prove when they come out with the, the you know, mandatory vaccine, I can prove I'm already immune to it. Well, first of all, Bill Gates has said no, we want everybody to get the vaccine anyway, because that doesn't really prove that you're actually immune to it, as if this hypothetical vaccine does. 
Um, but, but yeah, so like, why would you, if you have a, like you said, a, a, a market of 7 billion people on the planet, I mean, watch Bill Gates when he's talking about it. He's, he's practically shaking. He's so excited about he's it. He's actually giddy about it. Oh, oh, we don't need 7 billion. We need, we need 14 billion because everybody needs two shots. And, and I, and I don't think people are realizing that that's not the long game here. The, you you get the tracker underneath your skin. You can't ever take it out. You can't dig it out or turn it off or flip it off or turn the Wi-Fi off kind of thing. It's it's there. And then the, 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 the COVID-19 hypothetical vaccine, for all I know, it'll just be some placebo just so they can get the tracker. And it got everybody really scared and everybody agreed to do this. Um, and we shut down public life for anybody who says no to it. The long game is all the other vaccines they want to put us on. There's going to be an endless number of them. Do you agree? I do. And the thing, you know, with this, um, you know, with getting that antibody to prove you're you're immune, I mean, coronaviruses have been around, like I said, for a really long time. And they've studied them a long time. And they don't produce a very robust TH2 response. And that's why they've come out with saying that even if you've, you really, really have had a, a SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus, you really have had an infection, maybe you were in the hospital, maybe they really did test you, they subtyped it and said, yes, this was it. You know, they've tested the blood of people who've actually been in the hospital. They've done this in Italy. And they, they've tested the blood of people who've had the confirmed actual diagnosis from that virus they don't have a really high antibody response. It's like mm-hmm. the virus works because it's an RNA virus. Most of the other va- vaccines that give you a really high r- robust response, most of them of the viruses are DNA viruses, or you've, in- you've injected the full virus, not just this little strand of its genetic material. And so they have a different type of robust response. And you also get what's called a, a paradoxical immune response which you get a different type of antibody that isn't really a neutralizing antibody. There's actually four different types of IgG antibodies and they are appropriately named IgG one, two, three, and four. And what you want is a lot of IgG two. Well, this one doesn't do that. And so that's why they're saying, well, even if you've had the, the virus, you know, you may still be susceptible to getting it again, unless of, because you, your immune response isn't very strong with that. Well, if I can have the real infection and not be have long-term immunity, does that mean your crappy vaccine, I'm going to have to get one of those year after year after year after year after year after years until you decide that it's not a pandemic anymore? Yeah. And is that going to keep me from getting anything anyways? No, it's not. And in fact, this RNA type virus, the type that they're, they're working on making from this for this pandemic has never, ever been done and injected into humans before. And the most recent study, that, well, one of the more recent studies that I read was from 2012, which is pretty recent science. So they, uh, they did um, injected the, the vaccine, two doses of the vaccine into experimental, I believe it was, it was either mice or rats, but it was experimental animals. And they got this really robust antibody response, really robust. And they said, yeah, that's good. That's a good thing. That's what we're looking for. So now let's see if we re-expose them to that virus, does that really robust antibody response keep them from getting sick? Uh, no, not only did it not protect them from getting sick, they got so sick that when they sacrificed the animals, they had an accelerated autoimmune condition going on in their liver and kidney and their lungs, primarily their lungs. So it's not so much the vaccine that is specifically causing all the damage. It will be the re-exposure to the coronavirus, which there's lots of them out there. There's a big family of coronaviruses. And so you've introduced, you've, intru- um, you've interviewed Ju- Judy Mikovits, right? 
Yeah. And Judy anticipates that there could be up to 50 million people who die from this, if they get the coronavirus vaccine, this COVID-19 vaccine, if they get it up to 50, 50, 50 million people will die. The first being the heavily vaccinated first responders and military. The second will be the elderly that have been heavily vaccinated, heavily medicated and have frail immune systems. Mm-hmm. And it's, and that's in America alone. That's not even talking about globally. Yeah, and I've heard you agree with her as well. So that's that's two of you who say the, the death toll from this. And it'll be hard to pin it on them, and they know that. It's going to be hard to pin it on the vaccine because it doesn't. Nece- it's not necessarily like you get an injection and then you fall over dead. You... Well, even if you could print it on them because of the 2005 PrEP Act, and it's formed as a, count- as a medical countermeasure underneath this act, which gives them complete immunity to everything as a that's declared a a medical countermeasure i mean you if you got harmed from this vaccine or many many people got seriously harmed or died those people would have to collectively form a class action and go to attorney the attorney general to to bill barr and convince bill barr that these manufacturers nefariously made this vaccine intentionally to harm you that they knew and they have to do it under a, 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 a um, an, it's called willful misconduct, which is harder to prove than any sort of intent. It's at the legal, the highest level of willful misconduct, which means you have to prove what they were thinking. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, just to review. So in 1986, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act indemnified all the drug companies who want to make vaccines. Ronald Reagan, ironically, signed it into law. I think that he would turn over in his grave if he could... If he knew what came of that and the fact that for 34 years now, um, the CDC has violated the law and not put all of the vaccines in the schedule through testing every other year. They haven't done it once in 34 years. Now our kids are being vaccinated with just unprecedented numbers of toxic vaccines where I learned from you that there are 200 different toxic adjuvants, things that are added to uh, the vaccine schedule. We are going to get to... We, we, I want to respect your time. In the next 10 minutes, I'd like to cover just a few quick things, um, but they're really not quick things, so you're going to have to give me the short version because we want to get to what you think we can do to stand up to it. Later today, I'm doing a Facebook Live on five ways to stand up to contact tracing. Before it even rolls out in our state, it's rolling out in California right now. It's rolling out in Washington. There's a camp set up. There's a camp set up for to, to remove people from their homes and put them in in uh, quarantine, an outdoor camp in Washington state. Um, so I wanna get to what you think we can do to reclaim our freedom, because that's the whole point of this, this, um, this summit that we have in early August. I, want, I, I hope that you can give us some ideas about that. But I wanna ask you two questions before that. First of all, can you tell us why there used to always be aluminum in every, or I'm sorry, in mercury and everything. Now it's in the flu vaccine, I believe but they were taking a lot of heat for mercury poisoning. And so now they've shifted into aluminum. I'm gonna ask you that to give me your short version of that. And then I'm gonna ask you a very controversial question. Another um, of my guests, uh, Kent Heckin-Lively, who is Dr. Mikovits's co-author with her book, Plague, that hit the New York Times list, which amazes me, amazes me, the New York Times. They must have had an off week where they did not check who they were putting on the New York Times list because I can't believe they even let that through. Because it's not based on book sales. They, they hand select them. Can't believe it, which is really cool. 
Um, but he said, I'm interviewing him and he just dropped a bomb on me. Like I couldn't even think what to say when he said this, but he basically said when you are injected with aborted fetal DNA, and sometimes it's like fifth generation, you know, DNA, it's now, it's like a horrible carcinogen of just basically like rotten fetal material. If it's from a, the other gender, he believes there is evidence that this is at the root of our, a lot of gender confusion and a lot of these things. And that is going to be the most non unpolitically correct thing I've ever even talked about on my show. And I said, I thought I knew a lot about vaccine controversies. And I said, what did you say? And since then I've gone and done some research. So I'd love if you could touch on whether you feel there's, there, there's any actual evidence that when I'm as an infant injected and I'm a little girl and I get injected with among other things, the DNA and RNA of aborted baby boy fetal tissue with the DNA and RNA of a boy, that that can have an effect on these different uh, gender issues. That, and talk a little bit about the, in any order you want, the um, mercury to aluminum thing, because they're both horribly toxic and they just replaced one with the other, but a lot of people will say, oh, they got rid of the mercury in vaccines. So which one of those you want to talk about for the like, two minute answer? Um, the two minute answer for the, the uh, mercury and aluminum, that's really hard. They've written entire books on that. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, like multiple books on that. Uh, bottom line is, is that in 2002 or so, somebody sat down and actually did the math of how much mercury was getting injected into these babies on a, a given quote unquote vaccination day. And some kids were getting up to 187 micrograms of mercury and then suddenly becoming, you know, like within hours becoming uh, autistic. And how, how much is 187 micrograms? What can you compare that to? Or how toxic is that? What, do you, what can you give us as a reference point? It's a lot, I guess. I, I, it's, a, it's a lot. I mean, you know, um, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, Robin. I'm sorry. But nobody, nobody should agree to that much. No, I think, I think that, that the FDA says, the, the FDA says that, on, that on any given day, you can only, should only have up to it's 87, 80 micrograms of aluminum injected. So 187 micrograms of mercury, which is much more toxic than the aluminum is, is you know, more than double the amount. But I can't really come up with a, an equivalent like in ounces or something like that. I've tried to do that before, and it was, I was not very successful at it. And I think it's because most Americans aren't really good at, at metric system things, quite honestly. <laughs> but it's a lot. And so they decided that they needed to take that out. And so they had hearings in Congress. And instead of, of issuing a product recall to get all that stuff off the shelves, they, it went away by attrition over two years, and that gave them time to reformulate the vaccines. And as they were taking the mercury out, they were putting more and more aluminum in. Now, the mercury was supposed to act as a preservative, which is a crappy preservative that we've known since the 1930s. It really doesn't work as a preservative, but it's just been in the vaccines because. And then they started adding more and more aluminum, and, and the aluminum acts as an adjuvant. So it has two, even two completely different mechanisms of action. But it was a way to get more poisons into children. I mean, these people are psychopaths, Robin. They're absolute psychopaths. And, and, and it's the people at the, at the top of the pyramid are the psychopaths. I mean, the bench researchers and the people that are, that are down the totem pole that are either just doing what they're told or they bought the Kool-Aid and they think they're doing something good for humanity. They right. are nefarious people. It's right. the people at the top. Yeah. Thank you. That was actually a really good short, short answer. About the you know, I've heard um, there's several people who've done quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of research into that chimera issue, you know, of, of injecting, you know, male DNA into 
into little girls and vice versa. And is this a source of the gender confusion? I, I don't, I really haven't taken it personally, taken a deep dive into that. I would say that's a little bit of a reach for me. I would say that in, in, except for the fact that it could be a multi-generational transfer because we've been using these cells, these WI38 cells and this MRC5 cells, which are the two cell lines from, from aborted fetal tissue. One of them is male and the other one is female since the 1960s. And you know, so all of these people have been getting that. So unless it's a multi-generational transfer, um, it's a little difficult for me to see why suddenly there seems to be this huge explosion of gender confusion and, you know, trans whatevers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't, that maybe, and I'm just hypothesizing here, maybe that's a background setup and maybe it's all the other carcinogenic things. Maybe it's something to do with the glyphosate in co combination with that, with the G that's coming in through the GMO foods. Maybe it's something in conjunction with EMFs and 5G. You know, I think that there's this toxic soup that's going on in humans right now that we can't like slice it up and say this piece, this piece, this piece. It's the and. It's all of these things together that's just beating the heck out of the human genome and the human DNA and our mitochondria DNA and and our own microbiome and things like that so i i don't know if i haven't like i said i i i can't i can't say that it's like one thing but maybe that's a setup that in combination with these other things is affecting kids brains and their hormones i mean we know what happens to the frogs right we know what happens to the frogs out in the wild that gets exposed to all these different pesticides and they come out you know the male frogs have you know f also have female you know genitalia and you know they have all these deformities and so there are a whole lot of other pesticides that are out there that we don't even really talk about that may be also contributing to that hormonal gender shift that we seem to be seeing in epidemic proportions in young people these days. Yeah. And we're seeing some really good shifts away from, you know, like since somebody won $2 billion against Monsanto for Roundup that caused them cancer, those kinds of things. We're seeing a lot of people like Costco says they're phasing it out in the next um, year and, you know, countries that are banning Roundup. So there's some good stuff happening there. And I think that it probably is multifactorial, but I was just curious if there was any actual published research about it. And I, I kind of had a feeling that it hasn't, and nobody's really going to, going to touch that one. But there, there is a guy in, um, Reno, Nevada, who got a bone marrow transplant. And uh, I think it's two years later, they tested a whole bunch of different parts of his body. And except for like his chest hair and one or two other places, the DNA was his donor's, his donor's DNA. So mm -hmm. that, that study that I had heard, I had read about recently made me wonder, well, what, what is the result when we inject DNA of a third person? That's what Kent Heckin Lively was talking about, is that they have tested some people with um, different gender, he called it gender confusion. Please, anyone listening to this, know that I'm pro-gay rights. I love my... Uh, LGBTQ friends, I have many of them, but shouldn't we want to know if there's an explosion of this and if people who are LGBTQ have super high suicide rate and, and, you know, all this, you know, dysphoria going on, shouldn't we figure out why this is happening? Not, not to, um, you know, put any more emotional pressure on them, but we should, we should want to know what the answer to that is because that third person's DNA in them is, is the, the evidence that he mentioned to me so well, yes it's and it's two different ones if you get the mr the mrc5 and the wi38 you know one's male and one's female in that's two different humans 
and different human um, um, albumin. And then you take all the stuff from the fetal bovine serum and you're putting like cow DNA in there and chicken DNA and you know, what's happening with all of that. And so I think that there, there's, something, there's something to be said for that that needs to kind of be looked at. And they've done, there have been books that have been written on people that have had organ transplants. You know, organ yeah. transplants from like a heart, tra- like a man that would have an organ or this woman that I, I remember reading her story that she was, a, she had a, an organ transplant from a young boy. It was a heart transplant. And suddenly, she, you know, th- all kinds of things changed and what she thought and how she was and, and she liked different kinds of music and, you know, different, she's just totally different. And then she, she, it was like freaking her out. And then she went out and was starting to do some research on the internet. And, and there, this whole community of people that had organ transplants from uh, various organs from the opposite sex that were life-saving to them. But there was this emotional piece that went with that organ that ended up changing them a lot. Right. And so, you know, we do know that those sorts of things happen. So I don't think it's, it's out of the realm of possibility. I just, I just personally haven't, haven't had the time to like dig down into it. Yeah, that's, that's quite the deep um, rabbit hole right there. So tell us how we stand up to this and then tell everyone how they can, the researchers out there who want to go further with you. I know you've done over a hundred interviews since this whole nightmare started. And thank you for doing that because that's just a labor of love. So tell us how we can stand up to this. How do we reclaim our freedom? What are some just basic bites there, but what we need to be doing in the oncoming months is we're going to be trying, there's definitely some forces at play who are going to try to force us to do things, inject things we don't want for us, for our children. And then where can they, um, what's some of your best stuff? I saw an amazing video you did basically saying, please, President Trump, watch this. Uh, Where can they learn more about you? I know you clearly have a whole biomedical database, so... <laughs> there's a lot of me out there. Right? There's a lot of you. There's a lot of me out there, especially. I mean, there's always been a lot of me out there, but in the last 60 days, there's a lot more of me out there. You know, because because people pick it up and put it on their website, and then people pick it up, and you, you know how it works. Right. And so, um, well, I think one of the things that is most important that you need to do, we need to do, is ed- that's why I'm willing to do all of these interviews is educate, 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 because we're still a, a small minority of people that really understand this stuff, Robin. Yeah. Really understand why vaccines are not safe. They don't keep you from getting sick and they do cause harm and why you should say no. You know, my business partner and I started a new business about three years ago. It's coursesformastery.com. That's where you can find out all of our stuff, all of our various properties. It's courses, the number four mastery.com. And when we started this, we said, you know, Matt asked me, he said, what do you think is the priority here? I said, the most important priority is to be able to get to ensure people's right to refuse without ramification right to refuse without ramification. Because once we do that, once we shore up the ability to, to, to refuse, because informed consent is meaningless anymore. It's a, it's, a, it's a 1990s phrase. Because you could be as informed about this as I am, but if you don't have a right to refuse informed consent, it doesn't matter. Right. And so um, I think the first and foremost is to continue to get buttoned up with the reason why you should refuse. And you need to know a little bit about these RNA vaccines and what that could possibly mean. We need to know about our rights and our freedoms and what they're doing and taking away from us and what's gonna happen with these things. Mm -hmm. When these downloadable apps that track us everywhere. You know that's happening in Ireland right now? Ireland is locked down until September 1st. And they, I I guess, are required to have the downloadable app on their phones and they're not allowed to go more than three miles away from their house or the police can stop them and escort them home. And they're not even pretending that it's voluntary there like they're pretending it's voluntary in Washington State. 
even though you dig into Governor Inslee's documents and it says we'll, we can use the, we will, can and will use the police to enforce the voluntary quarantine. Yeah, and you think about the decimation of, in, of our global economy and all the sli- supply chains that come into mm-hmm. a little shop or a grocery store or a hotel, all the disruption of all of those supply chains, just, I, I mean, it's staggering to me. It will never recover. I mean, or it will take a generation or two. But so I think that one of the things you have to be informed, you have to know, you have to understand what the ramifications are of accepting this or not. You have to get really real in your own being about what am I going to do when they come knocking at my door? The time to decide isn't in that moment. The time is to decide before that with you personally, with your significant other, with your family, with your close set of friends and how you're going to respond together. I think a really important thing that we need to do is we need to educate the, the pastors and priests, the leaders of the church, we need to get the church off their dead butts and get involved with this in a very big way. Because, you know, where were the pastors that were saying, wait a minute, I take my orders from God. I don't take my orders from the government. The governor, show up. And if that means I go to jail, then show up. Because we're here to serve God. We're not here to listen to a bureaucrat tell us what to do. So I think we need to get the pastors and the priests and the, the church leaders fired up. And I think we need to get the first responders and the police informed because who are they for? And then most importantly among those, you need to get your sheriff. You need to get your okay. sheriff on board. You need a constitutional sheriff, the highest law in the land, who's going to stand on the Bill of Rights that's already there. That is our protection. It's like our only legal protection. So buy one of those little Bill of Rights and tape it onto your refrigerator door and learn it and know where your rights are constitutionally guaranteed. They still haven't taken those away and get a constitutional sheriff on your side go start talking to people start educating your police and your first responders because they are supposed to be there to protect you they are not supposed to be there to follow through on what they're told by some bureaucrat like amy ashton here in in ohio who's just the mouth who's just the mouthpiece for wimpy dewine you know our governor those are the people that we need to get on our side to say, do you understand what's happening here? Because your freedoms are getting taken away too. It's not just me, it's you and your family and your kids. And do you want your grandkids spitting on your grave someday because you had the opportunity to stand up now and do something about it instead of leaving all of this this Maoist type of of control over their lives that they can do nothing? Oh, and we've seen this happen before and it doesn't have a good outcome. We've seen Pol Pot, we've seen Mao, we've seen Hitler, and that wasn't ancient history. That was pretty recent history in our lifetimes. It cannot happen here in America. It cannot. And we have to, so if we can get those people on our side educationally and stand up and, 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 and revolt, say, you know, when you hear people say, oh, it's just the new normal, say, no, this is a temporary abnormal. And I really hope you'll help me to push that out there because we got to rip out that subconscious print imprinting of this is the new normal. No, it's not. This is a temporary abnormal. We've got to get rid of, we, do not let that into your subconscious. Get rid of this social conditioning of, you know, social distancing. What? No, I'm going to, here, I, I, I'm getting some t-shirts made for my website. One's going to say, free, support your immune system. Get your free hug here. You know, I, I was I was just before this interview, I was at uh, practice with my tennis team. I play competitively and they were all talking about how cute it is. All these drive through graduations they've been to 
please don't accept this. Please don't become inured to the tyranny and just accept that we aren't allowed to be anywhere near each other, that we have to follow a thousand rules that make absolutely no sense. I completely agree with you. I love everything that you said. I am going to help you get the word out. In fact, I'm going to post on my Facebook page today your quote, do you want your children to spit on your grave because you gave their freedom away? Your grandchildren, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Because we are fighting for children who aren't even born yet, Robin. Right. We're fighting for a generation of children on this planet who aren't even born yet. That's how important this is right now, is that there are children that aren't even born yet, that if we don't stop it and we don't make a difference, they're going to be born into slavery for the entire time they're on this planet. Well, you're amazing and beautiful and courageous, and I'm honored to call you my new friend. We will get this out there in a big way. Everyone should share this with their friends. You got some great tips about how you stand up to this. You got to get educated, like she said, and then you have to become highly articulate to be able to talk to the sheriff, to make those phone calls, to be able to like post the bill of rights on your front door and say, contact tracers not welcome here. We got a lot of work to do and we're going to do it aren't we? I, yes. I read a, there was something, I, I can't remember which state this was. Maybe it was Washington state. Maybe it was Illinois. Um, but they said that the contact tracers, are, you know, if, when the contact tracer calls you, be sure and answer the phone and answer all their questions. And I had a friend of mine that said, yes, please answer the phone and give them a piece of your mind. Yes. <laughs> Tell them they're not supposed to harass you. And what about Governor Cuomo that put all those people in the nursing homes that were infected? And, you know, this is harassment. And, and Tell them all about why the vaccine's bad. Tell them all the things that you can possibly. And, and tell them tell them about the history of Chairman Mao in the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s in China and say, do you want to be the most hated person in America for doing this job, for being a sellout, for, for being part of the regime? And to know that contact tracing is just a nice way of saying you're a spy. Yeah. And contact tracing, you're just a snitch. You're snitching on your neighbor. Yeah, you know, and up. so and so, pick up the phone and give them a real piece of your mind, and then hang up. I thought yeah. that was a great response. I thought it was really 100%. good. Hundred <laughs> percent, completely agree. All the people who got really well trained by screening the uh, creditors calling them, that will come in very handy at this point because <laughs> if you don't know that person, don't answer. Um, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, you are an absolute delight. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much.